Our Sunday school topic today is Romans chapter 14, the latter half, verses 13 through 23. And so that we can go ahead and kind of orient ourselves towards what we're talking about, I'll go ahead and read the whole passage. And even if you're familiar with this, let's um, pay attention to it and let's think and consider about what this passage is saying and how does this apply to us. It speaks of two different types of people and I think that um, many of us maybe will find ourselves uh, on different topics or another settled in both camps actually. So Romans 14, 13 through 23. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So this is a pretty intense passage, because we're talking about eating and drinking, very everyday things, very low-stakes things, and yet <clears throat> Paul is making the assertion that by what we eat, we might destroy the work of God. We might put a stumbling block in the way of the brother, which is no small claim for Paul. And so we need to see how he defends that. But first, we need to understand the backdrop or the setting that we're talking about. And the major, uh, the major distance that we have in our culture between what Paul is talking about in his culture is this idea of ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness. This was a huge part of Jewish culture and Jewish life. There were many laws that dictated cleanness and uncleanness, and they expanded into nearly every area of your life pretty much every day. So extensive list of animals that were considered clean or unclean, things that you could and could not eat, and there were significant consequences to the, uh, the nature of the clean and the unclean. So this exclusion from society was a big one. And as we think about this, we got to put ourselves in, in their shoes. Think about how significant in the society where you're so dependent upon one another <clears throat> would it be to be excluded from your society. You're kept out of the city. Sometimes you are excluded from worship, a major consequence for the Jews. These cleanness laws were numerous and they impacted every area of your life. So for example, just to show how extensive this was, when a mother bore a daughter, there were different laws for bearing a son and daughter, but when a mother bore a daughter, she was unclean for 14 days, and she had to wait 66 more days to be purified. So almost three months after bearing a child. Lepers, for example, were unclean indefinitely, unless they were cured. And there was sacrifice in many cases that was required for cleansing, 
If a person was made unclean, then they had to give sacrifice specifically for cleansing. And this, the, the significance of this is partly due to the joint nature in Israelite between their religion and their society. So these things were joined, uh, very interlinked, closely connected. So the context for this, as you can imagine, is, um, is really hitting home with the Jews because of how seriously this, the laws of cleanness and uncleanness impacted them. So this verse specifically is speaking with food. This is likely meat that the Jews are worried about not eating meat because they don't want to eat something that's going to clash with the ceremonial law. The problem with wine, most likely, according to commentators, is not having to do with drunkenness, but rather having to do with wine being so instrumental in pagan worship in the time. And so we don't want to participate in something that the pagans are using. <clears throat> so with that background, are there any, this is a discussion question, are there any elements of our society that are analogous to the ceremonial laws of cleansing? In our society or in our church, we can say. Drinking alcohol, yes, yeah, still is very relevant in especially church culture, we could say depending on um, denomination, often plays a major role for different reason, but so identical issue. What else? <clears throat> no other ideas? Come on. Okay, circumcision for some, that's true. <clears throat> I'll tell you the first thing that I thought of, <clears throat> this exclusion from society. Can you think of any, anything going on right now, major in our culture? Uh, we have a two-word phrase for it that is related to exclusion from society. Happens on Twitter all the time. Cancel culture. Yes, you gotta say the right things, use the right words believe the right thoughts. So not a precise equation, but it's analogous, cancel culture. So we are still using societal exclusion. It's still there. Scripturally, it played a very, very different role than cancel culture. And yet I would say that the, we'll call it the religion of, of the American culture uh, is, <clears throat> it's similar. I think in the church, other things that have infiltrated, I saw in the uh, early 2000s or 20 teens there was this um, video that I'm still not sure if it was a joke or not but it was a lady holding a can of monster energy drink and she flipped it upside down yeah you're nodding you've seen this and showed how this means the symbol for monster means 666 and so if you're a Christian you should not be drinking monster energy drink so there's the concern about things that are used by pagan cultures I think there are other um, there are other issues that have come into the church. For example, there are certain holidays that have been associated with pagan cultures that some think not worth celebrating. But there are still elements worthy of, of, of bringing into the conversation that apply 
just as this scripture applied to the Jews of the time. So where have we come? On what ground does Paul stand as he wants to discuss how everything is clean? I mean, the, whole, the Old Testament, almost entire books are dedicated to giving us the law, significant portions of which are laws of cleanness or uncleanness. So we'll start with Peter's vision. This is Acts 10, 9 through 15, <clears throat> and I will read it. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. So this is the sort of landmark, if you will, scene of God telling Peter that <clears throat> the animals are clean. The ceremonial law has been accomplished in Christ. The animals are clean. And then we see, in a related sense, this is not a direct analogy, but again, a related sense, how even Peter, having seen this vision, continues to struggle with the old way, so to speak. Galatians 2, 11 through 12. But when Cephas came to Antioch, this is Paul speaking, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Even Peter, having seen the vision himself, having heard the voice of God himself, and then carried that message with him later on in Acts, he still struggled with this. So it's a difficult issue. It was so ingrained in their culture. So ceremonial laws were present for Israel, and then in Acts they're done away with, so to speak. I, I hinted at this already, but what was the purpose of the ceremonial laws of clean and unclean, and how can God command Peter to eat when in the Old Testament he commanded all of Israel not to eat? Very good. Pastor Center says he changed his mind, so so we'll have to find someone else. Is anyone else ordained to preach for this morning? So the ceremonial law, <clears throat> in summary, very briefly, yes, the setting apart, there's, there's, they are true, it's lots of elements. The simplistic answer, it pointed them to Christ. And it served as a mirror for their sin. So remember we said it, it applies in every area of their life. So what should you be thinking about if in every area, every day of your life, you're being reminded of the distinction between clean and unclean? In some sense, the distinction between the holy God and that which is unholy. 
So um, this brings us into point number one, which is God made all things good. Very simple. Therefore, all things are clean. Uh, Verses 14, 20, and 22 highlight this point just for your own reference where I'm getting this. So this idea that God made all things good first speaks against this dualistic sort of attitude that creeps in in various times in uh, religious history. So this idea, in summary, I'm sure there's no one who's actually said this specific line, but basically the idea that your feet are evil because they stand on the earth, but your head is holy because it's closest to God. There are some religions that have similar ideas to that, where whatever, you know, you're touching the ground, that's, that's dirty, that's evil ground, that's your, your head, your, the skies, the heavens are spiritual and pure. And there is symbolism that relates to that. However, God made all things good. Boethius even went so far as to say that evil doesn't exist. Now, he had some complexity to that argument. He said, actually, that evil is not a substance, but it's rather a contradiction to something. Evil is that which is against nature. It's a lack of good. It's anything that is against God. So when God created evil, or sorry, when God created all things to teach Sunday school, yeah, right. When God created all things, Because evil is nothing, he did not create evil. Evil is a contradiction against good. And so, you know, we could talk about that for a while. But it's an interesting idea that um, all the things that God made are good. And only that which is against God, only that which is in contradiction to God, not anything that flows from God, is evil. Psalm 24 is quoted in another place. 1 Corinthians 10 quotes Psalm 24 the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. And Paul is making a similar argument there in 1 Corinthians, saying that we should eat whatever is sold in the meat market. We shouldn't quibble about, you know, sacrifices and this or that. But whatever is sold to us in the meat market, we are free to eat. And it follows the same logic, the, the scripture from the Psalms does, that God owns everything. God made everything, he owns everything, and it is good, and it is... <clears throat> good for use. Now, verse number 14 is an interesting verse because Paul wants to make this argument that nothing in and of itself is unclean, but then he says, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So, is Paul here saying that our morality is based on what feels right to us? And Hopefully you say no, so if not, why not? Yeah, excellent, right. The law is written on our hearts. God has given us a conscience for a reason. There is some elements of this, and the reason I ask this question is not because the careful reader will find it a particularly good question, but because it is often used, you know, verses like this are used as proof texts for the idea, you know, well, as long as you feel that it's right, then it must be okay. 
Paul goes on later to say anything that's not done out of faith is sin. And that is his answer to this. And so we'll go into more detail about what that verse means as we get to it. Um, And Mike, you you actually hit the next point too, which is if everything is good, then we have to be asking ourselves, what was this idea of uncleanness about? We've already answered this in part in the discussion question. And I won't read the full uh, the full reference, but Mark 7, 14 through 23, this is what Mike mentioned earlier, where Jesus basically goes on to say that nothing that comes from outside of a person can defile you. So the it is only that which comes out, that which stems from the heart, that which flows forth from you. So he says, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, etc. All these evil things come from within. They defile a person, not that which comes from out. So this idea of uncleanness is related to something that is true, but it is the uncleanness in our hearts that we are to be reminded of, not the uncleanness of anything that God has made. Verse 14 and 20 in particular highlight the idea that that cleanness is being contrasted with something higher than cleanness. So um, it's true that a thing may be clean, but that's probably not the most relevant factor in your situation. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a second. Furthermore, Paul also declares blessing on those who did not pass judgment on on themselves for what they approve. And this applies both to the weak and the strong. So the weak who are not pressured into applying judgment for themselves will be blessed. And then the strong who know that God has given us all things good and that they do not pass judgment on themselves for partaking in what they partake, likewise will be blessed. So point number two is that true faith does not require full understanding. So people may not understand that Christ was the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. They might not understand the connection of cleanness uh, or external uncleanness to internal uncleanness. They might not know the typology. They They may not have all the theological background, and yet these people are still part of the flock. And these are the people that Paul is crying out for right now. So if you want to look at what verses apply to this, again, 13... 13 through 17, 20, and 21 probably are most directly related to this, just so you know where I'm coming from. But Paul will tell us first, don't judge fellow believers. He says, rather rather than judging fellow believers for these matters, judge how good it would be to help them get to heaven. Judge how good it would be to not put a stumbling block in their way. Douglas Moo, the, the author of the commentary that I used, says, Paul wants the strong in faith to recognize that people cannot always existentially grasp such truth, particularly when it runs so counter to a long and strongly held traditional basis to their own identity as God's people. So once again, he's highlighting this fact that laws of cleanness and uncleanness were pretty inseparable from the identity of that early church. Yeah, go ahead.
Sure. Agree. Yeah, agree. So considering <clears throat> sort of those coming out of, for example, Catholic traditions, um, considering their um, plight with sort of an open heart to the teachings. And I would say, too, that um, I think it's an important distinction to make that although we would say that the Catholic, the teachings of the Catholic Church are not in line with the gospel and heretical, that does not mean that there are no believers in the Catholic Church who are true believers. They may be very weak in their faith, but I think if, especially if you find, you know, to give a simplistic answer for, let's say someone who's poring over the scriptures daily in their private worship, they may find themselves rather in tension with the teachings of the church that they're attending rather than um, completely in line with it, and yet, just as we see here, how difficult is it to come out of the tradition in which you were raised, especially if it's a family tradition, you know, if it's people, if you, you have several lines back and this is what you grew up on. And so I, I think Paul is in some ways calling us to be compassionate to that plight while still not uh, giving way to the to falsehood against the truth. So um, in a similar sense, as a reminder, so... Douglas Moo just told us, Paul wants us strong in faith to recognize that people can't always grasp this truth, especially when it runs counter to something they've held for so long. Are there any modern comparisons to such a matter specifically within the Christian church? And this is a similar question to what we started with, but any, any traditions, any teachings, any elements of our church perhaps that other churches may really struggle with? Reformed faith as a whole, yeah. Can you think of anything specific about it? Yeah. Um, before I make my comments about that, can you think of anything else? Okay, yep, baptismal wine. Baptism and wine. Not baptismal wine. We don't baptize, we don't baptize in wine for any visitors. <clears throat> Are we recording this or like <laughs> maybe some edits? Okay. So maybe the sort of the we have an inverse understanding of separation of church and state from what it was intended to be is what yeah okay. Yep. So um, predestination is in, election is instantly what I thought of, um, and the writers of the confession thought of this too. So Westminster Confession three point eight starts with the sentence, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. So um, how wonderful that they even realized and they thought to gave us this guidance, but it is a very hard doctrine. And I think there are 
That is not what this is about. That is not what Paul is speaking of. But he is speaking from principles that apply to that situation. He wants us to understand that not every believer is going to be able to accept the hardest of, of truths. Um, and they may not understand them. It may not be given to them to understand, and yet it is given to them to believe. So um, the strong brothers are called to be compassionate and loving to the weaker brothers. Verse 15, he outright tells us, grieving a brother is not walking in love. And we have to let the weight of this really sit down on us because food or drink, he says, could destroy the one for whom Christ died. Paul says that. And how could that be? Well, the weak in faith could be pressured by those who are stronger than them to conform to the practices of the stronger in faith, to eat and drink in this situation, causing them to go against their conscience. And one of two things is going to happen if someone is forced to go against their conscience for the name of this religion, which is that they will either become a legalist because they're performing acts apart from their faith, thinking that those are necessary to be part of the faith, so they are no longer doing things that are in line with their conscience, with the law written on their hearts, but rather they're just following what everyone else does, thinking that it's necessary, or they become a relativist because they're doing this to ground, uh, they're not grounding their morality from their conscience or more importantly in the law of God, but rather they are giving over their understanding of the law, which is rooted in God's character to a brother. So they're moving what is right. Its origin is not from God, but from man, they say. And so in doing this, this is the beginning, Paul would say, I think of chipping away at their understanding, at their orientation towards a God as all good, all righteous. And furthermore, it doesn't just affect the weak, but I think the strong will be impacted by this too, because if the strong ignore how their actions affect those around them, just for the sake of mere freedom, if they don't take heed of Paul's words, but rather they say, well, it doesn't matter how this is going to affect those around me, I am free to do this then are they, not also, um, are they not also bound by this impulse of freedom rather than bound by love for a brother? Are they not also pursuing first the pleasures of the world rather than pursuing what Christ has called us to? Douglas Moo, again, I think I have a couple quotes from him, says, if Paul implies Christ has already paid the supreme price for that weak Christian, How can the strong refuse to pay the quite insignificant price for the occasional restriction in their diet? And I think we would do good to heed that. Verse 20, do not destroy the work of God. Moo says, this is likely referring not necessarily to the individual believer, although you can see how it does apply to that, but to the church as a whole. So the unity of the church would be at risk of being broken by insisting on the practice of the strong, by insisting on a practice that is not central to the gospel. Paul even acknowledges that these stronger believers are right in their perception of freedom. They have it right. He doesn't waffle about that. But it's wrong to ignore the conscience of the believers. It is not, it is true, but it is not loving. It is not gracious to ignore their sentiments.
And peace with all believers is critical. And then in all of this, of course, we have to address this idea of eternal security. We can't get in our heads that eternal security is mechanical. If this, then that. But Paul here is arguing that it does indeed depend um, from a, a secondary causation on the body of Christ. Our actions influence others in the body of Christ. So we can be secure, and yet at the same time, Paul is calling us to take heed and take care not to destroy the others. Ultimately, what we have to land on as a principle is freedom is good, but freedom is not an end to itself. So just as the Pharisees insisted on strict adherence to the ritual law at the expense of justice, mercy, and faith, so in Paul's argument are the strong here insisting on freedom from ritual elements still at the expense of mercy, faith, kindness, goodness to your brothers. The kingdom's purpose, the kingdom of God, its purpose is not to eat and drink freely, but to love and encourage and uplift one another, to run the race strongly, <clears throat> and to help one another in that, and rejoice together in peace, in unity, uh, in, the, in the Holy Spirit. So that's point two. Point three, our last point here. <clears throat> this is derived from verses 18, 19, 22, and 23, for those keeping track. <clears throat> our actions are grounded in perceived or real promises. Uh, therefore, it's our faith in these promises and in the fulfillment of the ceremonial law through Christ that specifically will enable us to eat. We trust in the promises of God, therefore we can eat. And... <clears throat> That is crucial to the last verse in this chapter, which we will get to shortly. So we have to then, if, if our actions depend on these promises, we must then serve Christ first. He is the one who comes first. As I said, it's not first the enjoyment of that which is good. It's not the enjoyment of our freedoms, but it is serving Christ in the pursuit of righteousness and peace. This is what will be pleasing to God. Moo again, Douglas Moo again says, by following Christ in love and putting righteousness, peace, and joy ahead of eating and drinking, the strong, rather than being blasphemed by the weak, will be esteemed by them. So in this same regard, Paul goes on to say, let us then pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding, as we've already said. It is not <clears throat> the eating and drinking disregarding those around you that will result in that, but the loving of one another. And this principle, we can't really get into it because um, we're running short on time, but meditate, I think, on how this principle that we must pursue mutual upbuilding extends far past eating and drinking. There are many matters in the church where we would do good, I believe, without giving way to falsehood or being weak in our faith. We would do good to consider one another. And one goal of this, of course, is peace with one another. This building up that we're looking for is mutual upbuilding of the whole church. And it is up in part to the strong believers, I think, to foster this. Paul is calling the stronger believers to foster the mutual upbuilding of the church and the unity within the church, within the body of Christ, um, to be maintained. 
Um, we will pass over this question, but just talk about it briefly. So Paul in verse 22, where he says, <clears throat> the faith that you have keep between yourself and God. This, of course, is something that the culture very much would like us to do. But Paul is not here saying it in the same way that the culture would ask us. Don't keep all of your faith between you and God, but rather don't brag. Don't incite believers, don't incite weaker believers by your freedom to something that they don't believe to be true. Don't go to argue just for the sake of argument with you when you know the person doesn't want to engage in that. Healthy debate, totally fine. But berating weaker believers over a matter that they are not ready for is not the way to go about it. And we are confirmed in this so you say, what is the way to go about it? Paul says, <clears throat> the reason they don't believe these things is because they're weak in their faith. So then, how would we help them to understand the freedom that they have in Christ? We strengthen their faith. So, it is this, if the condemnation of eating or drinking for these believers is becoming because they can't do it in faith, then... We must pray for them. We must participate with them in learning the whole counsel of Scripture. We must encourage them to attend church. We must encourage them to pay attention to the sermons that are preached, to participate in family worship, to pray for one another, to join with us as we learn and pray and grow in our faith. For that is what has given us comfort in enjoying the full freedom that Christ has given us. Herman Ritterboss says, For a Christian, not a single decision and action can be good, which he does not think he can justify on the ground of his Christian conviction and his liberty before God and Christ. So, of course, we know the reverse of this is not true, which is to say our conscience is not perfect. We cannot say that anything which we think is right to do, we can therefore do, because we know that it must stem from our conscience and it must be therefore done out of faith. That is not what he is saying. But we are bound first under the control of the law of God given to us in the scriptures and then by our conscience when it is in agreement with that. <clears throat> and if our conscience is stricter than that, then Paul here has given us guidance. Ultimately, he's saying things are clean not because the material thing carries with it some sort of intrinsic morality, but it is the action in relation to the thing that carries that morality. It is what you do. It is not the food you eat, but the gluttony with which you eat it that is sin. And then furthermore, Paul takes it even further. On the flip side, if you're eating a food, that is the action of partaking in it, and it is a clean food, and yet your conscience bears witness against you, then even though the action is acceptable, it is not done in proper relation to God. And so, Ultimately, we must do right action and right faith. That is to say, the right, um, the right action in relation to God, always giving reverence in relation to God, always being in a state of prayer, so to speak, always attending to what God calls us to do. And that is what makes something clean, upright, good, moral. And... <clears throat> um, that is what Paul wants us to understand. It's not the thing in and of itself. 
Uh, it is what you do with the thing first, and furthermore, not only do you do the right thing, but do you do it with reverence to the right God? So in conclusion, <clears throat> how does this tie in with the rest of Scripture? Paul tells us, all things are yours, the world, life, death, the present, the future, all are yours. You are Christ. Christ is God's. He's given us all things. We worship the God who also says, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all, the, all, the moves are, all that moves in the field is mine. God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness is mine. God has everything. He gives us everything. He tells us that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also graciously give us all things? All things. Everything God has made, he has made good. Everything God has made, he has given to us. But that's only half the story that Paul's thinking about. At the same time, John, in 1 John, he, said, he does not say you will be known by your freedom. He says, by all this, people will know that you are my disciples for the love that you have for one another. We're told to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. Paul tells us we have to bear one another's burdens. We must understand what the will of the Lord is and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul is taking these two themes throughout Scripture and uniting them, and we have to ask ourselves, how do we join all of these things together? We can't separate them. We can't view them as if or as um, either or. We can't view them as, well, sometimes I'll be free and sometimes I won't be. But rather, we have to remember that the life of, of the Christian is called to be, in some sense, a series of both ands, sometimes seemingly a series of contradictions. Paul again says, we're treated as imposters and yet true, as unknown and yet we're well known. We're, we're dying and yet behold we lived. We're punished and not killed. We're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We're poor yet making many rich. And then lastly, he lands on it. We're treated as having nothing and yet possessing everything, which is what Paul again is calling us to. So when we partake, when we feast, and when we enjoy, we're not to do we're not to do these things as ones for whom the feast and the drink, these are the only things that we have to live for. Rather, we are called to do these things as ones who have been gifted these things from the King, the Father, and the Almighty. And only a small portion of what he has given us, he has given us here on earth. But then when we withhold, when we partake in simplicity, whether because of our neighbor or for some other reason, <clears throat> We are to do so also with great rejoicing, knowing that in this brief and momentary affliction, in this brisk sojourn we have on life, we will be offered a weight of glory beyond all comprehension at the end of it, and we will be offered in the end, whether or not we feast or famine here on earth, we will be offered a seat at the table of the Lord for all eternity. Does anyone have any thoughts, comments? Amen. Yes, sir.
Agree. Yeah, one of the great blessings is, you know, find the church that meets with your conscience. The warning I would add onto that, though, is whenever you find your church, whatever you commit to your church, commit and submit to that church. You may find, you will, you will probably not find the perfect church. And so rejoice in the freedoms you have. Submit also in rejoicing um, when you are bound to do so. Great point. Anyone else? Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word. Please refresh us. Remind us that we are given all things in you. Help us to seek out not pleasures first, but to seek out your glory, to raise one another up, to strengthen our faith and our maturity with one another. Lord, when you give us trials, please give us the perseverance to make it through them and cause us in all things to look to Christ. As we move now into worship, free our minds and our hearts from worries. Cause us to meditate on, on Christ, on your word, and to worship you with sincerity and truth, guided by the Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.